0: Follow along with me as I read from verses 22 through 30 of Acts 22. And they listened to him, to Paul. Now, you remember that Paul has been speaking uh, to the Jewish people out to, just outside of the court of the Gentiles. After the riot erupted, uh, where they were wanting to kill Paul for their assumption that he had taken a Gentile into the areas of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. And so they listened to him until this word. Now the word, of course, was the word Gentiles, as Paul was giving his testimony. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, leather thongs, leather strips, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman? and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. And then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him and the commander was also afraid that after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Shall we pray? Father, we come once again to your throne of grace. We come asking for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit. We come, Lord, desiring your wisdom and understanding. And pray, Father, that what we learn today can be applied today to our very lives as Christians. As believers in Jesus Christ, we do live in dangerous times. And it is to our good to see Paul and his reactions through these times of trouble and trial and persecution. But we're also thankful, Lord God that you are God that protects, cares, and delivers His people. May we be encouraged by that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the question has probably been asked, what is the real importance of studying these last chapters in the book of Acts on the life of the Apostle Paul? What's the real importance of it? All we see is his going from one trial to another, and we even wonder whether he was even in the will of God with all the troubles that he went through. Now see, that's the way sometimes we think. We may ask the question, why are we going through these things where we just see him going from one trial to another? Got himself in trouble. Probably not even in the will of God, some people think. Now, Maybe you never really thought about asking that question. But I want to ask you something. Was, was your mind stimulated with a statement I made after the question? I mean, doesn't it sound like our own lives being lived out every day as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? That even in our own lives we're going from one trial to another? Anybody here? Just wondering? Just three people in the whole place? A lot more of us. We're going from one trial to another, sometimes wondering whether we're in the will of God or not. Yeah. Dealing with seemingly endless troubles. I don't know about you, but but it sure is encouraging as well as refreshing to know that there is a lot to learn about the struggles of Bible characters. And in this case, the Apostle Paul, who in the midst of these tribulations and persecutions, maintained his steadfastness. He maintained a steadfastness that comes from the very heart of this apostle who said to us in Acts twenty twenty four, as he was saying to the uh, Ephesian elders in Miletus, and he said to them, but none of these things move me. Now what was he talking about then? He was talking about the very fact that so many people had been telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, bad things await you there in Jerusalem. Things are going to happen there. You might even be killed there. And that's why Paul says, none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul was steadfast to that very heart passion. And whether we want to admit it or not, we can get awfully weary, even in our Christian walk, because the enemy of our souls is constantly attacking us. And certainly we see how the enemy of Paul is constantly attacking him. And because we know that Paul was human, Paul could went through his bouts of weariness. Let me share quickly what the, the Apostle Peter declares in his letter, 1 Peter 5. And I start in verse 6 because I want you to see... What, what he's saying here he says therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you in due time i think that's always wise counsel every day that we gather in the precious name of the lord humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you now make the checklist in your mind but are you casting all your cares upon him every day because i can assure you we all we all have cares in this world casting all your care upon him for he cares for you and then he says be sober he gives in essence a command by the holy spirit be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour resist him And then he says, steadfast in the faith. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Just as we know what Paul went through, and what Peter went through, and what the apostles went through, and what all the disciples of Jesus Christ have gone through, down through the ages, that even today, as we are here today in a very safe, comfortable place, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ in other lands. And in other places, we still have to resist the enemy. We still have to be steadfast in the faith. The encouragement is knowing that we're not alone in going through these issues. I mentioned that Paul was at times weary. Paul plotted. I don't know if you noticed the title of our message here today. Paul's plotting against plotting. Paul plotted at times. We at times plod through this world. What does that mean? What does it mean to plod? Well, to plod, P-L-O-D, means to trudge or to tread wearily. Some people think that because the Lord promised us salvation, safety, and security in this life, that there should be no harm committed against us. And if that does happen, then maybe God isn't faithful or maybe we're sinners. But remember Jesus' words to His disciples in John sixteen thirty three. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. And then He says, In the world you will have tribulation. I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say you might have tribulation. Uh, it's uh, possibly a good chance that you might have tribulation. He said, You will have tribulation. I think it's really important for the believer in Jesus Christ today to know that we will have tribulation in this life. Until Jesus Christ comes. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And I want you to remember that phrase because it's an important phrase in the life of Paul. Jesus said to us, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And there was such confidence in what Jesus Christ came to do on this earth that He said, I have overcome this world even before He went to the cross. Where we know He overcame the world. Where we know He overcame sin and death. Not only there when He said it is finished, but when He rises from the dead three days later. I have overcome the world. But He's very clear. In this world, you will have tribulation. How many times did Jesus say to us in the Gospels, You will be hated for My namesake. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And never forget, they hated me before they hated you. I think the Lord was very clear of what we have to face as believers in Jesus Christ in this earth. And so in our preliminary reading that we read of the last part of chapter 22, Paul was was rescued by the Roman guard, but wasn't he beaten before that? <laughs> Yet they rescued him because they, all, they were going to kill him. Paul was rescued by the Roman guard, but, he, but then the Roman guard takes him and they bound him with leather straps to be scourged, to be beaten. They were going to give him the, the third degree. You've ever heard about that? This was the Roman third degree. Well, we want to find out why you're causing so many problems among the people. We don't like problems here in Rome or or in the, the Roman Empire, you know, wherever it might be. We don't like it, so we're here to kind of find out. So let's beat you so you can tell us what the problem is. And so at that moment, Paul pulls out his proverbial trump card and he announces that he's a Roman citizen. And that certainly changes everything. Because you see, the Roman commander at this point seemed to be fair, an an upstanding man who desired a just resolution. But he also responded in fear because if Paul indeed was a Roman citizen, then it was against the law to judge him before trial. As a Roman citizen, Paul had rights. And so this commander ordered Paul to stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Congress, as it were, of which Paul had once been a member. And now we see that Paul has another opportunity to speak and to testify of Jesus Christ. And it just reminds us again of what the Lord told Ananias About Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, in Acts 9.15, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. At this point, of course, he is before the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, at this point, Paul knew the general plan. How many of us, at least, uh, knowing that as we pray and ask God for wisdom and guidance for our daily lives, we all know a pretty general plan of 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 our calling and purpose. We do, don't we? We know it. We have a general plan. Paul had a general plan of what he was was going to do, but just like us, he really didn't know how it would all work out. We don't always know how it's going to work out when we ask God lead us into this day direct us that we might be right before you in, in dealings with others. And, and, and so we know the general plan, but we don't know how the, the, the details are all going to work out. I, I hear people say, you know, the devil's in the details. Well, that's, you know, that's a saying, but I, I, I believe what the Bible says. God is in every detail. But we don't always know what the details are when we get started into the, the plan that God has given us. And Paul didn't know how it would all work out. He had to trust God just like you and I have to trust God. But Paul was a good one to trust God. He loved the Lord. He loved Jesus. He he was serving the Lord. He knew he was in Jerusalem because he was bound by the Spirit to be there. God knew, or I should say Paul knew, that there was a general plan. But now he doesn't know how the details are all going to work out. So in verse 1 of chapter 23, now we get into our text, Paul looking earnestly at the council. Now that that phrase, earnestly, intently, with seriousness. So he sees and knows who these people are. This is not a formal meeting, therefore, everyone is probably dressed in, in, in normal garb, and I'll tell you why I say that in just a moment. But he's before the Sanhedrin. And he says to them, Men and brethren, I have lived all in all good conscience before God until this day. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And we think, well, that's a pretty good introduction to his speech before the Sanhedrin. But in verse 2 it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Well, that's a great way to be introduced to the Sanhedrin. To get struck on the mouth. Under the commandment of Ananias, the high priest. (laughs) And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul knew the law, didn't he? But then those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Quoting Exodus 22. Now, in that first statement that Paul makes, men men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God. Until this day, Paul was not saying that he was sinless. We have to kind kind of determine why Ananias would have Paul be struck. Uh, Paul was not saying that he was sinless. Uh, sinless. He, he recognized his failures. And then he acted upon, upon it to correct them. When the Lord begins to allow us to recognize our failures, don't we act upon them to correct them? Well, Paul did it we do too. In fact, Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. He writes that, he says that of himself. I'm, a, I'm the chief of sinners here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4, but with me it is a very small thing, that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now he's not speaking to the Sanhedrin here, but it's as if he is. In fact, I do, do not even judge myself, for, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So very clearly, Paul knew where his conscience lay. Paul knew that he could lay his conscience down before God. God would judge him. God is his only judge. But the high priest's reaction to Paul's statement revealed something. It revealed Ananias' wicked wrath against Paul and against Jesus Christ. Why so soon? Strike him. Without giving Paul an opportunity to defend himself, or to give testimony as to why he was where he was and doing what he was doing. Ananias had Paul struck on the mouth, which actually was a violation of the law. Paul calls him on that. Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 and 2. He knew the law, see? Deuteronomy 25, 1 says, If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judges may judge them. And they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, notice, that uh, the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Goes on to talk about 40 blows. Now, only a man found guilty could be beaten. And Paul, at this point, had yet to be found guilty of anything. How does he come before this group of men at the request of the commander of the Roman guard and then begin his defense and then be judged before a second sentence is given? But this was the evil that Paul had to confront. And this is the evil that we may have to confront as believers in Jesus Christ just for opening our mouth to say the name of Christ. I'm not trying to exaggerate here, but someday it may be against the law for us to even name the name of Christ. It is that way in some countries. Why should it be that way here? Anybody ever thought about that? It's not so much, you know, this thing about, you know, uh, banning Christmas and, you know, the people are still going to have Christmas, aren't they? It's not, a, it's not the, the thing about Christmas, it's about Christ. Because Christmas only comes once a year and only during a certain period of time. Jesus is around all the time. As long as we are here, Jesus is here. And we're to proclaim His name. We are to stand for Him. We are to proclaim His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're just doing what He commanded us to do. But this was the evil that Paul had to confront. And history teaches us that Ananias as a high priest was, was a man who did not honor uh, his office. His office. He did no honor whatsoever to his office. He was well known for his greed. As a matter of fact, Josephus tells us how Ananias stole the tithes for himself that belonged to the common priests. He charged high prices for the temple coinage, which was the only thing they would accept for the purchase of animals for sacrifice. That's almost like saying, we only take MasterCard here. So if you really want to sacrifice, we, you know it has to be Mastercard, not a Visa or anything else. We have Temple coinage, and if you want to sacrifice, we only accept Temple coinage. But you have to buy the Temple coinage from us, and here's the price. And Paul's reaction and his rebuke toward Ananias was accurate, and it was justified. The high priest was indeed a whitewashed wall. A white veneer of purity covering over obvious corruption. You know, we've often heard uh, times remember what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in, in Matthew chapter 23. It's, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He would call them whitewashed sepulchres, whitewashed tombs. Kind of purdy on the outside, but inside just filled with ugliness impurities, corruption, sin, wickedness. Have you read Ezekiel lately? If you've been going through your daily readings, you probably have just read Ezekiel recently. And it talks about, you know, where Ezekiel is allowed to see inside the temple, you know. What may be beautiful on the outside for worship of God is ugly on the inside when even the leaders turn their hearts against God. And Paul calls this high priest a whitewashed wall. Now the high priest was not only to be the administrator of the law, but he was to be an example of the law. But he violated the law by having Paul struck. So what kind of an example is that? They're making their own rules, you see and paul when 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 told that he had spoken evil of a ruler now some people say well he apologized he may, he may have he may have shown his humility and respect to the office and not so much to the man now that's possibly true but i want to give you another perspective here it is also possible that paul being paul in the way that he responded anyway was responding sarcastically when he says i didn't think that anyone who acted in such a manner could be the high priest you see the perspective and people have thought, well, he didn't recognize Ananias because they were in their normal garb; they weren't gathered together in their priestly robes and whatever. That's possible. Paul had bad eyesight, as it were, you know, as it were. But was that really it? He says, "I didn't think that anybody who acted like that could be the high priest." So, sorry. But now in verse 6 it says, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, And the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. So we're getting a little picture of what the Sadducees believed, or not believed, or didn't believe for that matter. They didn't believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in angels or spirits. Because it goes on to say, and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, the Pharisees believed in spirit and in angels. Because they believed the Word of God. Essentially. And then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, in other words, it was getting so bad that they thought, well, maybe they're going to take Paul and keep beating him like they wanted to kill him before. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. You know, Paul was having a wild ride in Jerusalem. But what does this section tell us? First of all, it tells us that Paul knew his audience well, didn't he? He perceived He realized there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees. And what we're not told, but we can can receive by implication here, is that they weren't going to be receptive to the gospel. They weren't going to be receptive. Their attitudes and their actions made that plain. Paul couldn't get one sentence out before he struck in the mouth. He said, this is, if I go into my testimony as I did out on the stairs, if I try to make my defense, my apologia here before these people, they're not going to listen to me. But he also knew that the Pharisees were biblically conservative in their belief in resurrection, and the Sadducees, being the liberal wing of the council, denying life after death, hence the resurrection, they would respond in opposition. Paul knew this. And so while the Pharisees found some common ground of agreement with Paul, the Sadducees erupted in disagreement. And the two groups argued vehemently amongst themselves. So do you see now why the Sadducees were sad? They didn't believe in resurrection? They didn't believe in spirit? Doesn't the the Lord even Himself say... That he is a spirit and not a man. So they didn't believe in anything. They were actually more political than anything else. So that's why the Sadducees were sad, you see. I just had to get that in there. So I thought that that was a good time to do that. Well, at some point, the Pharisees were saying this. Let us not fight against God. Do you know that they had remembered something that Gamaliel, the, the rabbi, even twenty years before, uh, had said in Acts five verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine, when the when the disciples, you know, when the apostles, the disciples of Jesus were were becoming a, a, a tremendous uh, uh, effect upon uh, upon the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, and and uh, he says to them, and "Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. If if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing." But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest you even be found to fight against God. And so, to some remembrance of what this great rabbi said, they said, let's not fight against God. Paul believes in resurrection. Paul believes in spirits. Paul believes in angels. Paul has that Pharisaic understanding of God's Word. Let's not fight against God. Now, we have to come to reality here because... While Paul may have saved his skin, he probably wasn't very pleased with having caused the commotion. Twice now, twice now, the opportunities to preach the gospel blew up in his face. On the stairs of the Antonia Fortress, at the mention of Gentiles, the riot breaks out. As he begins his defense before the Sanhedrin, even one sentence brings a smack to his face and again the romans pull him out of a potential potentially volatile situation and it does make me wonder and it should make us wonder does, does was paul down on himself because of this could he have been down on himself well consider the next verse verse 11 I would suggest that he was. Because in verse 11 of Acts 23, it says, But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul, stop there and just think. When did Jesus tell his disciples, Be of good cheer? The night of Passover? before He is arrested, before He goes to the cross, when He is revealing to His disciples what He has come to do. In their confusion and in their struggle to understand, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. And here, after Paul has gone through all of these struggles in Jerusalem, with the Jews and with the Romans, with the Sanhedrin. At night, the Lord stands by him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, first of all, the words spoken in here are spoken in terms of a physical presence with Paul. He says, That night, well Luke says, that the Lord stood by him. That there was some unique and blessed manifestation of the person of Jesus with Paul. And he says, be of good cheer. But then again, the Lord did promise every believer that he would always be with him, didn't he? That promise is not only for the disciples of Jesus' time, that promise is for us. Matthew 28.20 At the very end of that verse of Scripture, Jesus said, Lo, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The things that we can apply from the things that the Lord had said to Joshua, I'll never leave you never forsake you, are for us. Those are the promises of God that we have to stand upon and that we can be steadfast upon in our faith for Christ today. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And and the Lord says to Paul, be of good cheer, Paul. I mean, the Lord gave him words of comfort because the Lord knew that he really needed them. We need those words today. Now, I have to say, there are a lot of Christians... But, but, but let me clarify, there are too many Christians, too many Christians, who today are not being comforted by the very fact that God says, I'm with you. When if I can encourage you, even now, be encouraged, the Lord says He's with you. So whatever you face... The moment you leave this place today, or whatever things you know you're going to face tomorrow uh, at work or at school or wherever it may be, God's with you if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. He's with you. That's a promise that God has made, and God is faithful to keep His promises. And we need to believe what God says. Be of good cheer. Well, you know what? We can be of good cheer when everything is great, right? When everything is going, when everything is peachy keen, when everything is groovy, right on, everything is cool. There's no problem, right? We can be of good cheer then. But when things aren't going so well, When things aren't going so well, knowing that we have a great God with us always brings us good cheer in those times, or at least should. It should bring us good cheer. I don't care what you go through. God said, I'm going to be with you. And not only that, but the Lord had more work for Paul to do. And this is what really blesses me. I think if, if there's anything I want to tell you, take home with you today, take this home. Paul was told by the Lord, so you must also bear witness in Rome. You know what he was telling him? I'm not done with you in this life yet. Now, most of us would want to hear that from the Lord directly. I'm not done with you yet. I've got another mission for you to go on. I've got another thing for you to do for me. Wouldn't you like to hear that? Sometimes God does that to us. Sometimes God tells us, I'm not done with you. It may be a long while before that uh, happening takes place, but if God has reminded us or if God has encouraged us with that, Praise the Lord. There are many times that he doesn't, but then again, don't worry about that. Why? Because then we can activate faith. We have to trust the Lord every day, each and every day of our lives. Paul didn't, you know, Paul had that general plan, as I mentioned before, he didn't know how it was all going to work out. Well, that's where faith comes in. And God wants us to be people of faith, people who trust the Lord, even though we may not see the answer in front of us. In this particular case, Jesus tells Paul, you've testified for me in Jerusalem. It makes me wonder, these people that say that Paul was wrong in going to Jerusalem, here is where I know that God said, it wasn't wrong, I sent you there. I sent Paul there. But I'm also going to send him to Rome. Now, let's take that knowledge, and let's be right with it. You know what I mean by that? Let's not abuse what God is giving us. Let's not take it for granted. In other words, if God has given us more days to live because He wants us to accomplish another thing in this life, then let us live those days between when you hear about it and when you're to accomplish it. Let's live, live each and every one of those days for God and for Christ. You know, there was a king, Hezekiah, who was given 15 extra years You know that in those 15 years, he wasted them. He wasted those years. A.W. Tozer said, Lord, I don't want to be like that. If I'm going to waste those years, you already know that. If I'm going to waste them, just take me now. I don't want to waste any days for your glory. So understand, it's a blessing to know that God has something more for us. But let's live those days right before God. And so, Rome awaited Paul. And that should encourage any of us to know that God's not done with us yet. And as I can tell, as I look around, you're all still breathing and alive. So I'm figuring God's not done with you yet either. Praise the Lord. All right. A stay alive till the end. You know what's good to encourage us about it? Romans 8.28 And we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose. We know that all things work together for good. Paul's been in a heap of trouble. It's okay. Why? Because all things work together for good. Well, Paul was going to need this good cheer, because let's look at verse 12. (laughs) And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together, and they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I guess we could call these the perils of Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They they came to the chief priests and elders and they said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow. As though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near." Kind of a Jack Ruby thing, if you know what I mean. You know, go, go, uh, bring him out, you know, and tell him you want to talk to him, and and we'll be there, and we're going to get him before he gets to you. Plotting. See, Paul had been plotting, you know, treading wearily through all of these things. Of course, being strengthened by God when he needed that strength, as we just saw. But his adversaries were plotting. A plot was now formed to have Paul killed by over 40 men who had taken an oath. The word oath there in the Greek is the word anathematoso. Anathematoso. We, we, some of us have heard the word anathema, right? The word anathema is a curse. But this word anathematoso speaks of a person who binds them, themselves under a curse if they do not fulfill the oath that they have made. So it's a self binding curse. And in other words, what they were saying was, may God do so to us and more if we eat and drink anything before Paul is put to death. Uh, That is somewhat uh, terroristic, isn't it? Now, to help pull this off, they got the members of the Sanhedrin to play along with them. They were to tell the Roman commander that they wanted to speak to Paul again regarding some issues. And isn't it interesting that these keepers of the law, the Sanhedrin, hated Paul so much, they hated what he stood for so much, that they were willing to break the law and lie, and make up a story to get Paul out and kill him. You know, there are a lot of cults today, and there's even, of course, you know, within... Muslim circles where lying is okay. You know, it's a means to an end. But with God, God doesn't see it that way. And He didn't give it to us that way. These were men who were supposed to be honoring the law and they were breaking it. So do you really think that God was going to be honored by their actions? No. And yet today many do the same. They have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. And thus the result of their actions is given to us in 2 Corinthians 4 by Paul in verses 3 and 4 when Paul says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is something that he certainly had experienced. And so again, he's experiencing these things. So you see, they were not serving God by their actions. They were serving the devil. The God of this age blinded them. They were serving the devil. And at this point we see... Now the providential hand of God at work on his behalf. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, uh, that's a long way of saying Paul's nephew. (laughs) So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and he said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. You see, God knows how to take care of his servants. God knows how to take care of his servants. God took care of Paul that day. So what happens? Paul escapes. And how does he escape? Well, if I were just to tell you this and not read on, you would have to say, that's weird. But Paul escapes with a full military escort. And a letter referring his case to the provincial governor. Let's look at verse 23. He called for two centurions, that is the commander, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Now, if I did my math right, that's 470 men to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, that would be about nine o'clock in the evening, and provide mounds to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And the commander, he, wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, that's the commander's name, by the way, I didn't mention it earlier, but here he's, he's identified. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him. He doesn't say he first beat him, or wanted to beat him. And he also doesn't say, you know, that it was actually Paul's nephew that came. That's why he told him, don't tell this to anybody. He gets a little glory here, you know. Uh, So he says, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council their counsel, and I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. (laughs) Well, that was the letter. Paul was to take this to Felix the governor. But uh, he had a 470-man escort to do it. This is a pretty important person, isn't he? I guess, because, you know, we have a president who has has secret servicemen all around him. But I don't think 470 secret servicemen, they would be pretty noticeable. You know, there's a number of them, but I don't think 470. So it makes me wonder, boy, this this, this Paul really got into everybody's skin uh, for one reason or another, and so his importance is really raised. But, you know, from the worldly perspective, maybe that's so, but from God's perspective, he's mine. I'm going to get him there no matter what. When the Lord takes care of us, he really takes care of us. Paul had a guard that, that numbered more than ten times that than that of his conspirators. 470 guards versus 40 assassins. Pretty good odds there, right? That he'd stay alive. Verse thirty-one. The soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. And so, actually, when they got to Antipatris, which is about thirty-five miles uh, from Jerusalem, uh, Caesarea was about sixty miles, so it was about halfway. When they got there, actually, the the uh, uh, the troops, the, uh, the armed guard themselves, uh, left Paul with the, uh, with the horsemen. And so the 70 were to escort Paul from there. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And we'll kind of begin there next time, but the large group of soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris, as I said, some thirty five miles from Jerusalem, because this area would have been primed for an attack upon the apostle by assassins between Jerusalem and antipatris uh, the terrain the terrain was tough, it was rocky it was it was dangerous enough to hide for an ambush, and so he needed the four hundred and seventy men but Beyond Antipatris, the country was open and flat and quite unsuited for ambush. And so the, only the cavalry accompanied him. You know. So the Lord sent out the cavalry for Paul and escorted him to Caesarea. And that's where we'll begin next time, but we're not really done yet. Because what we see here is that the Lord was working things out for Paul to fulfill his word. The Lord was, look, was working things out for Paul to, for, to fulfill his word. He wanted a witness before the rulers of the world. And there is no greater witness for Christ than a believer standing up for Christ in the face of persecution. Persecution. Now there are three things I want you to consider. First of all, standing firm demonstrates the truth of the gospel. Standing firm demonstrates the truth of the gospel. Its message of love and salvation is clearly seen by the persecutor. Standing firm demonstrates the truth of the gospel. The persecutor sees that, sees the love of Christ, sees the salvation in one person. Secondly, standing firm gives the Holy Spirit a unique opportunity to reach the hearts of those standing by with the truth of the gospel. Standing firm in our faith in Christ gives the Holy Spirit a unique opportunity to reach all those who stand by and to reach them with the truth of the gospel. Later on, we're going to find out that Paul is going to be chained to certain guards. Roman guards are chained to Paul as some common criminal, as some murderer. But yet we know that the guards were the ones who were the real prisoners. They couldn't escape Paul. And Paul had one message, the love of Christ, the power of God to change lives. So many people around, if you remember, well, if you, as you'll see, if you haven't read through the book of Acts, but as you'll see, not only would this, the guards be saved at times, but their households, A lot of people are affected when we stand firm. If one believer stands firm in the gospel. Thirdly, standing firm is a testimony against the persecutors. Because it shows how deep the wickedness and evil of their hearts are. And it will stand as a testimony against them in the day of judgment unless they come to know Christ. Well, we will find that his accusers were quick to come down to Caesarea, if you remember. Felix says, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. Well, those guys were going to come quick. They didn't hesitate to follow Paul. And so as we move along, I think that you will detect that Paul is not defending himself as much as he is indeed witnessing for Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus had said that he would witness before governors and rulers and kings, and this is now about to happen. He's being brought before them. But let's remember, this is God's method, not man. If it had been up to man, Paul wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. If he had listened to all the pleadings in all the churches where Paul was, where prophets were saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. Would we even be sitting here today? You see, this is God's way. This is God's method. We may not understand it fully. But yet we still see the hand of God moving Paul from place to place as his witness, as his testimony for Christ. And so I conclude with the thought that Paul is indeed in the will of God and that God is carrying out his purposes through Paul. But at the beginning of the study, I brought up the thought uh, that uh, plotting the weariness through the struggles and trials and temptations and tribulations of this life would cause us certainly to grow all the more weary. I want to conclude with the words of Paul to the churches in Galatia. In Galatians 6 verse 9, and just give this to you. For you to consider. For you to be encouraged. And let us not grow weary, Paul says, while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I encourage you, don't grow weary when facing various troubles and trials. Don't grow weary. And don't lose heart. And I'll just give you one reason why you don't have to. God said... I'll be with you. Jesus said, I'm with you always. The Holy Spirit is with us always. God is with us if we know Jesus Christ. But I ask you, do you know Jesus? And does that knowledge of Christ change your outlook upon all of life? I hope it does. And I hope it does to your eternal life. Let's pray.